of Deuteronomy. Now, towards the end, the very end of the book of Numbers, in chapter 36, verse 10, it says, The daughters of Zelophehad had, had did or did as the Lord commanded Moses. There was a particular issue there, and they handled the issue by going to the Lord, and then they did as the Lord had commanded. And that's bringing things full circle. Because through the first 10 chapters, you know, even going back to the beginning of the book of Numbers, when they take the census as the Lord had commanded, and um, Moses is taking the opportunity as far as instructions and preparations before Israel would leave Mount Sinai, and this present generation would be able to go and, of course, take the promised land. But all through those first 10 chapters, we see this theme of them doing as the Lord had commanded. So here at the end of the book, we see it again. And so it brings us full circle. And then we come into the book of Deuteronomy, and this is where we've got to make sure that we have the correct perception of the book. Uh, sometimes people think of it as merely law or a restatement of what they've already read in Exodus and Leviticus. But that's not the case. Look at chapter 1, verse 5 of Deuteronomy. Moses is not just simply restating the law. It says, quote, Moses undertook to explain the law, saying... So Moses, one who has been with the people for decades in a role as a mediator, a prophet, he has all this experience with the people, he is going to teach them the law. He's going to explain to them the law. So to me, that's exciting that we get to hear Moses speak this fully in helping them understand the law and preparing them to be able to go into the promised land and take the land. So when we have the correct understanding of Deuteronomy, we understand there's tremendous value. Even as you come into the New Testament, Jesus quoted from the book of Deuteronomy more than any other place. There's over 200 quotes or allusions to the book of Deuteronomy in the New Testament. And we know when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, all three times he quoted from the book of Deuteronomy. Even from a theological standpoint, we look beginning at Exodus and we see the story of redemption being told. And then through each of these books from there that Moses wrote, there's these pictures of how God is going to save his people. Exodus, very clearly, we see that there'll be a deliverer that will come that will rescue their people from slavery. And it's because of the mercy and grace of God, not because they're a righteous people. And in Numbers, we show that even though the people fail, even though they're sinful and they rebel, that God is going to still take a people through the wilderness and to the promised land and into the promised land and they will have their inheritance. We see the sovereignty of God and that he will fulfill his promise. And now as we come to the book of Deuteronomy, we get to see the teaching that they're going to need and to help them understand not only who they are, but because of what God has done. So we truly get to see them go from grace, because think back to Exodus. They weren't saved because of who they were. They were chosen. From grace to faith, right? From the gospel to a response to the gospel, from deliverance to obedience. So this is a very important transition. And as they transition into the, from the wilderness into there, they're going to have to have what we will call a steadfast, unwavering faith. So these are just a few points that come out of the book of Deuteronomy in terms of this type of faith. The first thing is this is a type of faith that cannot and does not 
look to self. Because as soon as we look to self, it's no longer an unwavering faith. It will waver. Failures in faith happen when we look for our own deliverance or we rely upon ourselves for our hope. The second thing here, of course, faith does not listen to the crowd. As soon as Israel starts listening to the masses, that leads to failure. And that was part of their failure. They listened to the masses instead of listening to God and trusting and putting their faith in God wholly. And then lastly, a steadfast, unwavering faith will not dissolve due to the fear of what might happen in the future. And this is one of Israel's greatest failures. They, they saw the provision of God. They saw everything that God had done for them. And that should have given them the faith to know that they can trust His Word, trust His promises. And even though these obstacles are in front of them, to have the faith to go and you know, overcome those obstacles with God helping them. But they failed to do that. And then the last thing is just a warning that we see from the book of Deuteronomy. And that is, if you have a wavering faith, if you rebel, it will encourage other people to have a wavering faith. And it will encourage other people to rebel. So with that, let's set up the book of Deuteronomy coming to chapter 8. Because that's where we'll spend our time today, chapter 8. So in chapter 1, Moses reminds the people of their parents, the prior generation, and why they fell in the wilderness and the lessons to be learned from that. So this is the beginning of his first sermon. So remember, this is Moses, and he is getting the opportunity to explain, to teach the law, and preach these sermons, and this is where he begins. In chapters 2 and 3, now he's focused on the people that he's talking to and the things that they have experienced in their lifetime in the wilderness, and this record of their history is very encouraging. As they come to chapter 4, it becomes a call to action, though. They've got to listen and obey God, and they've got to avoid idolatry because there is no one like God. Now, the end of chapter 4 begins the, or the introduction to the next sermon, and then as he gets into chapter 5, he declares the covenant, and he gets to the heart of the law. You have to love God with your entire being. So he's explaining that, and then right on the back of that, which is so interesting, is you've got to teach your children. And here's the model for success. So how is, how is faith going to be passed from generation to generation? Now, you don't send them to the priest. No, you teach them. It's in the morning when you wake up. It's along the way. It's at night. It's, you put it on your doorpost. You put it on your head. You're meditating on the Word all the time. That's the model. That's the model for their faith. And it's model for the faith of the family. And that can continue. Then as we come to chapter 7, it becomes about identity. They've got to know who they are based on God choosing them. And that's that key word, chosen. And I think verse 6 is the key verse. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And of course, that brings us into chapter 8. And so in thinking about the wilderness here, is, uh, of course, it's this reflection. The Lord led the people into the wilderness for a purpose. So if you'll look at those first five verses and start to put your eyes upon that, the purpose is revealed to us. So those 40 years in the wilderness were not just time that they needed to, you know, just wait and, well, eventually, you know, we'll... We'll get this punishment over with and we'll be able to go into the... No, God had a purpose 
even when he assigned the punishment, and it's revealed to us here in the first five verses of chapter 8, God's purpose was to humble them and test them. God was determining what was in their hearts because their hearts were going to be revealed based upon this testing in the wilderness. And so what we figure out is that God uses these difficulties that are in our life, these trials, these sufferings, to reveal what's in our heart. It's a testing. So they're absolutely necessary. The difficulties test us to see if we will obey the Lord. And that's exactly what we see him doing with Israel in the wilderness. Will they obey me as they face difficulty after difficulty? They're going to have to put aside their pride, put aside their self-reliance, and they're going to have to learn to 100% depend on God. And when I think about, you know, myself and coming to Christ, you know, I, I think that I'm here not in spite of the difficulties, but I know I'm here because of the difficulties, the things that had challenged me and humbled me and broke me down so that I could come to the only real solution, which of course is Jesus. And back in college, and I think about a very confusing time, a path that I, I put myself on thinking that it was a, a wise and, and a good path and how it led to just so much turmoil and so much pain something that was not going to go away or that I could go through in a short amount of time. It was one of those things where it's like you're watching it from afar. It's like, oh, why does he keep doing this? Just make better decisions or that's not the way. I, I hate to see him suffer like that. But God knew I needed it, right? And it helped me arrive at the first of these three things, humility. I needed a broken self-image, so that I could realize or recognize the brokenness that was truly there all along. But if I walk in arrogance, I don't see the brokenness. And if I don't see the brokenness, then I don't have a desire to find a solution to heal the brokenness. I need to be humble. We all need to be humble. God uses the difficulties, the trials, the suffering, the pain in our life to help humble us so we can see the brokenness. The second thing was an open and seeking mind. Not that I had this perception that my cup was full, but I certainly needed to have the understanding that there was plenty that could be in my cup and that I needed to seek to find the information, the understanding, the knowledge, the wisdom to fill my cup with the right things. And that, of course, happened. I knew I needed to fill my cup, and I began to seek to fill my cup. And then lastly, an available heart. The things that, or the thing that had been on the throne of my heart, it had now vacated. I had pushed it off. Get out. So the heart was available. But now it needed to find the right person. And I needed to put that person, of course, Jesus Christ, on the throne of my heart so then he could govern, right? And when I say govern, he could take control and charge of my life and all the adjoining faculties of the heart. That was necessary. Now, if you look at verse 3 of Deuteronomy chapter 8, we'll get into what we see explicitly as far as what God was accomplishing. He said, and he humbled you. Moses said, and he humbled you and let you hunger. Think about that. Do we see that the hungering was not by accident? 
God left them hunger to humble them. And it's very interesting when you're reading through the account, you'll see that God would take them up to the extent almost of the physical body. So if we're talking about water, then typically we're talking two to three days. He would let them thirst two to three days. If it was food, we're talking about the extent of two weeks. It says it explicitly in the text. So he's not talking about a couple days and a little bit of discomfort. No, he's letting them suffer. He's letting them truly hunger. And it was on purpose. He's using this suffering to humble them. So what does God want them to learn? Well, if you keep reading in verse 3, it says, quote, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Trying to teach us a critical truth while we are in the wilderness, while they were in the wilderness, that life is about trusting in God and particularly trusting in what God says. God gave Israel food in the wilderness, as we had mentioned earlier, and that provision was supposed to help them understand that they could have faith in God, that he would do what he says, and he would fulfill his promises so that they could overcome these obstacles with God in obedience. But they failed to do so. They would not act upon belief, but they demonstrated disbelief. Now, considering what's said here, we better understand in Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus is being tempted by Satan, why Jesus spoke these words from Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. You can see the words on the screen. Jesus meant that he could trust in the promises that came out of God's mouth to provide for him. He didn't need to turn the stones into bread. And all of Satan's temptations had to do with giving Jesus a different path to seemingly receive what God was going to give him in God's timing. Think about when he took him up so that he could see all the kingdoms of the world. God was going to give Jesus that authority and power, but he was going to have to walk that difficult path before he received that authority, right? Satan's saying, nope, you can circumvent that, right? Satan's lying to Jesus. I'll give it to you now. You don't have to do all the suffering. Jesus knows better because Jesus trusts in the word all the words of God and that's what we are going to have to learn to do as we are in the wilderness and if we're going to enter the eternal rest we're going to have to learn to trust in God and everything that he says like Jesus notice in verse 4 of Deuteronomy chapter 8 God is pointing out or Moses is pointing out that they were provided for it says quote your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell for these 40 years, right? God took care of them. They had what they needed. They should have recognized that and trusted God, trusted what he said, trusted his promises. Now, as we transition into verse 5, we kind of look at a different idea here. It says, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So we know that God is disciplining them and he's teaching them through these difficulties. And sometimes I know we have the tendency we hear the word discipline, we think uh, a punishment for wrongdoing. But here we see there's other aspects to discipline. God is allowing these difficulties, these trials and so forth to be instruction and teaching. He's allowing them to learn lessons through these difficulties. 
So it makes me think, you know, today as far as the application, even thinking about parenting, right? If we take away the consequences, then we're not going to allow our child to learn these important lessons by making their own decisions, making certain mistakes, and then suffering because of it, having consequences. That's how we learn important lessons, and those are the types of lessons that can't be learned another way. We have to learn them by making the mistake and having the consequences. You know, a kind of trivial example is even with little kids as they're kind of wrestling about, you can sit there and tell them this is too far, and you know, like they can conceptualize that, but they can't up to a certain degree of development they have to go too far and then they are told well that was too far but they felt the pain or they had some type of consequence that makes it to where they can understand now oh wow I went too far so when you couple it with the experience and the instruction that's the type of discipline that can change the mind change the heart of course God understands that about his creation about his people so he allows them to experience these difficulties so they can learn these lessons. This is discipline, and discipline is good. Now, as we come into verse six and following, we see what we'll call the problem of prosperity. But as we come to a better understanding of it, we'll see that it doesn't have to be a problem, but God will actually can use prosperity in the same way that he uses these difficulties. So as we look at verse six and following, Moses tells the people to obey the Lord because the Lord is bringing them into a good land. So think about that. That's a blessing that God is giving to them. And if they're obedient in the land, they're going to be blessed. They're going to have blessings from God. They will be prosperous. So as they come and they're eat and they're satisfied, God's going to provide those things so that they can have that satisfaction. Those are good things that are coming from the Lord. Now, if you'll come to verse 11, this is where we come to a better understanding of what can happen though with prosperity if we're not careful and this is where it can become a problem he said in verse 11 take care lest you forget the lord your god by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which i command you today lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied you can see the tendency God knows that when they have all these things, there's a tendency to forget God and let the prosperity feed into our satisfaction and think that it's because of us, right? And then all of a sudden, God becomes second or a distant thought. And that's the problem. And he says, verse 14, then your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. So once you have all these things, and you have the satisfaction from the land and possessions. Your heart becomes lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you the water out of the flinty rock, who fled you, fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you. To do you good in the end so we have a tendency to let our hearts become proud and forget the Lord and all that the Lord has done for us and think that we have all these blessings because of what we have done and because of our faculties and our hard work 
and the things that we've been able to accomplish. And so we've got to set that aside. It's not by our wisdom. It's not by our knowledge. It's not by our decision-making power. It's not by you know, anything that we've accomplished truly. It's a blessing from God. Verse 17, the warning. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. God is the one that provides for us. He gives us the knowledge, the power, the decision-making ability, the things that we need to be prosperous. We recognize the prosperity and we acknowledge God and we bless God. This is the appropriate way. Notice in verses 19 and 20, what's going to happen to them if they allow themselves to forget God. Then they will surely perish like all the nations around them, the nations that are supposed to fall under their sword as they enter the promised land and take their inheritance. So what we're seeing is that prosperity is just as much of a test as in, of our faith as the trials of life. So God literally can use the trials and the difficulties just the same as he uses prosperity to test us in this life, whether we will acknowledge God and we will bless God for all that he's done for us and remain faithful and continue to trust in him. So let's think there's a few pieces of application that we can kind of unfold here. First, of course, is that Moses tells us, he teaches us that the wilderness is a place of testing. And that, of course, is where we are in terms of this analogy between what's going on in the Old Testament and the pictures that God is giving us of our salvation, the way that God is going to save the world. Then in the New Testament, we're currently in this place of wilderness. So we recognize, we, we become aware that when we're going through some difficulties or trials in this life, that God is using or allowing these things for a testing to humble us. We look at Jesus as that example in Matthew chapter 4 and how he handled it the right way. Quoted from the word, he understood what God said, he understood what it meant, and he put his faith and he trusted in God and God's timing and ultimately God's promises, and so he was able to reject the temptation of Satan. We too... We see the provision of God. We have the scriptures. We know that all that God has done through the people of Israel and for us and salvation in Christ. And we let that compel us to trust in all of his words, trust in his promises, knowing that they will be fulfilled in his time. And in that way, whatever the obstacle, whatever schemes that Satan would use to try to cause us to fall, we can reject that temptation just like Jesus. And we can walk faithfully. And that's what we should do. Be careful to walk faithfully, knowing what God has done for us. And so each day is kind of like we have our own little mantra. Because of what God has done for us, I will trust in his words and I will walk faithfully today. Now the second point here as far as the application is just a little bit of self-reflection. You know, what trial am I currently going through that God is using to humble me? Uh, what am I suffering? What pain is God allowing that's getting me to see things differently or to remove some pride 
or to find the humility that I need desperately in order to walk faithfully with God. And look, in a congregation this size, we know that there's people right now that are suffering. And maybe people know about it, maybe people don't. And we feel for you. We want you to reach out you know, to your brothers and sisters uh, for support and help. But we want to make sure that we go through it the right way. That we're trusting in the Lord and we don't see it as something that's meaningless. But we recognize that the purpose that God has determined for the suffering and we allow it to have its effect. Right? So we think about what James talks about with those trials that we can rejoice in them. Why? Because they're fun. No. Not because they're fun. Because of the effect that they have. They're moving us to maturity. To what God wants us to be and what he knows that we can be. But the only way we get there is through those difficulties. Remember, as I made the point earlier, I know that I stand here not in spite of the difficulties, not in spite of being broken down and going through all the turmoil and pain. It was because of those things. And while I was going through it, I probably wasn't praying the right prayers. I probably didn't have the right understanding. I probably just wanted the suffering to end. But now with all these years gone by and the understanding of God's word and, and looking back, the prayers would have been a lot different because I would have, had, would have had a better understanding of what God's will was for that suffering and what he wanted me to accomplish through the suffering. But we can do that. We're being instructed from the word. So when we suffer now, we need to handle it the right way and trust the Lord, trust all of his words and continue to do what is right. And with God, we'll overcome the obstacles. So when we're faced with problems, now we know on the other side of those problems is the better way. It's the solution. It's depending on God wholly and trusting for what he wants to accomplish with us. So in a way, it's kind of exciting. When the problems come, when the suffering comes, let's see what God wants to accomplish. But we've got to go through it the right way with God. We can't allow ourselves to be like Israel, right? Feeling sorry for ourselves, the whole poor me type thing, complaining and having a wavering faith. Because remember, if we rebel, if we have a wavering faith, we encourage others to do the same. And then lastly, we certainly can't blame others. That's a spiritual shipwreck. And of course, it doesn't just hurt ourselves. It discourages the people that we're blaming. Our adversary is Satan. God allows this for a purpose. We need to have that understanding and go through it the right way. Then lastly, this problem, so to speak, of prosperity. But come with me to Deuteronomy chapter 14. There's an important lesson that's tied up in the instructions here as far as tithing. So God wanted the people to give him 10% of all that they had been blessed with, including grain, wine, oil, and their flock. And they, even if they lived far away, God would allow them to convert these things to silver and so that they could provide their tithe in silver. And they would bring that to the Lord. Now in chapter 14, beginning at verse 24, we'll read a few verses and see if we can see the picture here. And if the way is too long for you so that you're not able to carry the tithe, when the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses, to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. 
and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. So God is telling the people to bring in their annual tithe, but, I mean, did God need the tithe? Did he need the animals? Did he need the money? Obviously not. So what is God doing? Well, he's telling them to bring the portions of the riches that he has blessed them with, first to share with the Levites, because that's the system that he's designed, and they're dependent upon that. So share with the Levites and share with God. But not because God needs it. It's because God wants to share in the blessings that he's blessed us with to celebrate and feast with us and enjoy with us as we praise God for the blessings. God wants to, to be a part of that. So we oftentimes will shift to these two different extreme, extremes. Like we know what it says in Ecclesiastes about enjoying the fruit of our labor, but we can take that and be like, well, you know, I don't feel comfortable with that. We, we shouldn't, you know, this is dangerous. This is sinful. And we, we go away from that and we don't allow ourselves to enjoy the fruit of our labor. Or the other extreme, we enjoy nothing but the fruit of our labor. We put aside the, you know, the, 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 uh, the work and the things that need to be accomplished and we just focus on the enjoyment of these things and we abuse that. And obviously God is not pleased in either extreme. But what he wants from us is to understand that these riches, this provision, these blessings are from him. And to be thankful for the blessings and enjoy the blessings with God. Use them appropriately. And if we'll do that, then obviously we have not forgot God. Which in Deuteronomy chapter 8, that was the warning. Don't be eaten, be full, and be satisfied. And, and once you get this nice house and gold and silver is multiplied to you and livestock is multiplied to you, that you become arrogant and think that it's because of you and forget me. So the blessings are good. The prosperity is good as long as we remember where it came from and we continue to bless God. And so as we drive all this down, we see that Israel fell. Jesus succeeded. He's our model. We need to look to him. So I urge us that we would trust in the word of the Lord and all the words of the Lord. And then finally, that whether it's prosperity or suffering, to remember that God is trying to teach us important lessons so that we need to always trust in him, no matter what those obstacles may be. And they may be the type of obstacles that make us shake in our boots, right? Just like when we think about Israel having to cross over the Jordan into those fortified cities with those big people. That would be terrifying. Moses being dead and the new leader having to ascend and lead the people, that would be terrifying. That for any human being, while God said be strong and courageous and gave them the instructions as far as keeping the law. It's not easy. Doesn't mean that God's gonna make things easy, right? But he's given us and he's equipped us with everything that we need. And we have got to be stubborn about the word of God. We have got to be willing to trust in God in all his words, regardless of our circumstances. We don't need to understand why. We know why from this standpoint. And we need to go through it the right way. 
and just watch what the Lord will accomplish. If we can do it like that, then we can do what James said. We can rejoice knowing the effect that it's going to have. Now, this morning didn't particularly preach the gospel, but we talked about some very important things that can relate to the person that is not in Christ. If you come to a place of understanding that you want or you need Jesus as Lord and Savior, and you think that you have humbled your heart and your mind is in a place where it desires to follow, to submit to him as that Lord and not just Savior, and your heart is open and available to a new king, a new ruler, and you want to be a citizen of his kingdom, then all you have to do is let your faith compel you, take a little bit of courage and walk down here. You can confess him as Lord and Savior and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. So please come as we stand and sing.